0: The Book of the Prophet Nahum. This short prophetic book is a collection of poems announcing the downfall of one of Israel's worst oppressors, the ancient empire of Assyria, and its capital city, Nineveh. The Assyrians arose as one of the world's first great empires, and their expansion into Israel resulted in the total destruction and exile of the northern kingdom and its tribes. The Assyrian armies were violent and destructive on a scale that the world had never seen before. And so Israel and its neighbors were awaiting the downfall of Assyria, which eventually came in the year 612 BC. The Babylonians rose up and began a rebellion that overtook Nineveh and brought down the Assyrian Empire. And so chapter 2 depicts the fall of Nineveh in vivid poetry and chapter 3 then explores the downfall of the empire as a whole. But this book isn't just an angry tirade against Israel's enemies. The introductory chapter shows us that there is way, way more going on here. The book opens with an incomplete alphabet poem that begins by describing a powerful appearance of God's glory. It's very similar to how the previous book, Micah, began and how the next book, Habakkuk, is going to conclude. And it's God, the all-powerful creator, coming to confront the nations and bring his justice on their evil. And the poem opens by quoting from the famous line of God's self-description after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus chapter 34. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. He won't leave evil unpunished. And so the rest of the poem goes back and forth, contrasting the fate of the arrogant, violent nations with the fate of God's faithful remnant. When God brings down all the arrogant empires, he will provide refuge for those who humble themselves before him. Now, here's what's really interesting, is that you thought this book was only about Assyria, but Nahum actually nowhere mentions Nineveh or Assyria in chapter 1. And when he describes the downfall of the bad guys, he uses Isaiah's language about the fall of Babylon, which happened much later in history. And not only that, Nahum also describes the downfall of the bad guys as good news for the remnant of God's people. It's a direct allusion to Isaiah's good news about the downfall of Babylon. And so all these little details from chapter 1, they come together to make a key point. For Nahum, the fall of Nineveh is being presented as an example, as an image of how God is at work in history in every age, how he won't allow the arrogant or violent empires of our world to endure forever. And So the message of Nahum is actually very similar to that of Daniel. Assyria stands in a long line of violent empires throughout history. And Nineveh's fate is a memorial to God's commitment Meant to bring down the violent and the arrogant in every age. With this perspective from the opening chapter, the book then returns to its focus on Assyria. And so chapter 2 describes the battle of Nineveh and the overthrow of the city in progressive stages. So first we see the front line of Babylonian soldiers and then we read about the charge of the chariots and then the chaos on the city walls as the city is breached, then the slaughter of Nineveh's people, then the plundering of the city. Chapter 3 goes on to describe the results of the city's downfall for the empire as a whole. So Nahum begins by announcing a woe upon the city whose kings built it with the blood of the innocent. It's an image of how injustice was built into the very system that made Assyria so successful. But their violence has sown the seeds of their own destruction and so Assyria will fall before Babylon. The book concludes with a taunt against the fallen king of Assyria. He's stricken with the fatal wound. And from among all the nations that he once oppressed, no one comes to help him. Rather, they sing and celebrate his destruction. And that's how the book ends. Now, this is a gloomy book but it's important to see how Nahum's message addresses the tragic and perpetual cycles of human violence and oppression in every age human history is filled with tribes and nations elevating themselves and using violence to take what they want resulting in the death of the innocent and the book of Nahum uses Assyria and Babylon as examples to tell us that God is grieved and that he cares about the death of the innocent and that his goodness and his justice compel him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations and God's judgment on evil is good news unless of course you happen to be Assyria which brings us all the way back to the conclusion of that opening poem in chapter one which tells us that the Lord is good and a refuge in the day of distress he cares for those who take refuge in him. And so the little book of Nahum invites every reader to humble themselves before God's justice and to trust that in his time he will bring down the oppressors of every time and place. And that's what the book of Nahum is all about.
1: All right, so let's jump right into this. So I'm going to give you some context of what we're just going to walk through in the next few minutes together. So if you were here the last few weeks, we were. if you go back to the book of Jonah, remember the prophet Jonah, he went to where? Nineveh? Well, he was supposed to, but he took a detour, but he ended up there sooner or later to tell them to repent, and they repented, so they turned. So that represents Assyria. So there's this turning from what they were to what God wants them to be, and so there's this great story of redemption for them. There's a challenge with that because 150 years later is where we read now in Nahum. And now what's happened is what happened 150 years before didn't take. They, they repented, but they didn't walk out that repentance generation after generation after generation. So now we find them 150 years later now facing judgment again and going to be overthrown. And because of that, what, what I want to take some time to do is because we've been going through the minor prophets and how they kind of are all streaming together God's redemptive purpose is talk about What does it look like when we actually walk out repentance? And so because of that, because we learn, we'll learn from Nineveh from Assyria's downfall that, that they didn't walk that out. And for each one of us, repentance isn't only a one-time event where we turn, it's a lifestyle that we embrace. And so kind of to give you the picture, what is repentance? In the simplest form, it's by definition, it's turning. It's a turning that happens in our life. And so for each one of us, depending on what stage we are in the journey and understanding and following Jesus, as we're we're moving through life and we're living the life that we think we want to live the way we want to live it, something happens in our life where God gets our attention and we realize that we're missing the purpose and the mark for our life that God has, that we are living in sin we're, we're really rebelling against him that moment that comes alive and we realize we have to turn from the path that we're on and so that's repentance it's that moment of turning around and turning back toward God now the beautiful thing about the way God works is no matter how far you've walked down that road you, there isn't this need for you and I to somehow make our way back the road the other way to God because God is always present the moment we turn he's right there but there's a challenge with that initially, and that's what we'll learn from, from Nineveh and from Assyria, is that there always, when you turn back to God and you're following Him, don't you wish that the moment you repented from your sin and you turn back to God, you never, ever, ever struggled again in your life? Don't you wish it was that, that way? How many know it's not that way? Because there's always, because of our human nature and because of the world we live in and because of the enemy of our souls, there's always these roadblocks that come up in our pathway, on our, our walk of repentance. And I want to start with three things that we can learn from, from Assyria and from Nineveh. What happens, what roadblocks will kind of pop up in our path as we're trying to walk out repentance and turning towards God. The first one is this. The first roadblock to walking in repentance is pride in our position. That we reach a certain place in our understanding, in our life, that we think that we are better than we really are. So listen to what it says in Nahum chapter 3, verse 8. We're going to jump around, but the passages will be on the screen. It's, again, referring to Nineveh and Assyria. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? What is, what is the prophet saying? He's saying, listen, you think you're better than this one city that seemed to be fortified, that couldn't be destroyed? You think you're better than them? You think you're secure in your position, that nothing bad is going to happen to you? And so he's saying, you think that of yourself because you think so highly of yourself that you don't realize that destruction is coming because pride has entered into your experience. And in our lives and following Jesus, pride enters in all the time. God, God wants us not to live in pride, but something happens in us where we, we don't see reality, and, and, and pride always blinds us. And I think it's probably true for you in, in your life, what you've experienced. But when it comes to pride, we always try to figure out where we are kind of in the ranking order of who's good and who's bad. So who's superior to us always makes us feel bad about ourselves because we're not as good as them. But we can always, always find somebody who's inferior to us in their behavior, in their lifestyle, in their sin. So somehow if we find that inferior person, what does it do? It makes us feel good about ourselves. Why? Because in our mind, we think, at least I'm not as bad as whoever that person is. It's the same thing that happened recorded in the New Testament when, the, when before in, in the temple when they were worshiping, then you have a religious leader and a tax collector side by side, and the religious leader looks at the tax collector who's pouring out his heart before God in repentance, and the religious leader looks down on him and says, at least I'm not like him. What is that? That's pride. See, what we do is we have a tendency to grade ourselves on a curve, And we're always somewhere above the bottom on the curve. And that's what pride does. It makes us not look at our lives in reality. And that's why someone who's dealing with pride will never ever see the need for repentance because you'll always find somebody else who needs to repent more than you do. There's always that feeling. And so be aware of that. When you start to look down on other people thinking that you're just a little bit better than them, then you're finding your way back the opposite direction from where you had turned originally You're no longer walking down the road of repentance. You're walking back into what you used to live, which leads to the second thing. A second roadblock in our journey of repentance is detours to the past. If we could just stay on the path and head towards where Jesus is leading us, that would be great. But every once in a while, we take a turn back towards the past. We take a detour back towards the past. So remembering, okay, going back to Jonah, chapter 3, verse 8, says this of Nineveh. It says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So God is saying, listen. One of the issues that Nineveh had was that they were a violent people towards each other and towards others. So then, if you fast forward 150 years, Nahum chapter three verse one: Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. So what are they again? They're a bloody city. They're a, they're a violent people. So what have they done? They repented 150 years earlier, and now they're right back doing the same thing that they did before. Anybody would admit you've ever done that in your life? We have. We go back, and we find ourselves, how did I get back here? I took this detour, and I ended up where I didn't want to be. And it's, it's that reminder that we get in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, and where we get compared to a dog. It says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And we're just like that. We go back to the cycle. We go back to where we were before. We take that detour to the past. Now, the beautiful thing about following Jesus is you and I don't have to live in fear of our past. We don't. We don't have to live with this reality that our past will control us. But we do have to live aware of our past. And that means because each one of us has weaknesses and has places in our life that were strongholds in our life historically, that we know that we can't go back and entertain those thoughts or those environments because there's something in us that still is drawn back to that. So it doesn't mean that we're running scared from our past, but we certainly are aware of, our, the, kind of the what is our kryptonite, what is it that keeps us from moving forward, we keep going back to. So for me, in a kind of a practical sense, I've dealt with allergies my whole life in, in various forms and and one of the things that's interesting, I have all kinds of allergies, but I have very few food, food allergies. I've been tested three times in my life. I've been poked more than anybody I know and tested on everything. But I know one thing. There's one, one item of food that I know that I am allergic to, and it's cashews. And it took a while, and I finally figured it out. We went to a Chinese restaurant. I ordered cashew chicken. It was delicious until five minutes after the meal was over. And then we were on our way to the ER, because my throat was closing and I was having trouble breathing, and, and so I realized cashews are not a thing that I can eat. So does that mean when I walk into a room and someone's eating cashews, I run screaming and yelling out of the room because, no, I don't do that, but I know I'm not going to go eat cashews. I do know, by the way, if anyone ever gives me a gift of cashews, I know how you really feel about me. So I know <laughs> that you would rather have me dead than around, right? But I know that I'm not going to live in fear of that, but I know that I always check ingredients and I look at things and I'm aware. That if I eat that, what it's going to do to me? What is it in your past that you need to not be afraid of, but you need to be aware of? Because if you if you aren't aware of that, you are doomed to go back and repeat it again and again and again, and not walk out this pathway or this walk of repentance. And then, (coughs) excuse me. Thirdly, third roadblock to walking repentance is stolen affection. So listen to what is said of Babylon and also of of Assyrians, of those who were not following God. It says in, in chapter 1, verse 14 of Nahum, the Lord has given command about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated for from the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. What is God saying? Listen, you have images. What is an image? An image is an idol. And I'm going to go after your idols, those things that you hold valuable and hold dear in your life. And I'm going to go after those things because those very things are the things that steal the affection that you should have for me and take you further and further away from what I want to do in your life. And so what happens is you and I don't realize that idols become something that just steals away what only belongs to God. It's what was brought up even without using the word in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus about them. He said, But in verse 4 of chapter 2 in Revelation, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent, you turn again. You started off on the right path, you were going down the right road, but something stole your heart, something grabbed your attention, and you started to follow that instead of me. Now when it comes to to idolatry, so many times when we think of idols, we think of all these bad, vile, horrific things in our life. But usually, for most of us, idols are usually good things that become ultimate things. There's something that starts out good and right and should be a part of our lives, but then they take on the role that only God should have in our life, and they become the ultimate outcome of our life. They become the focus. They become what drives us. They become the focal point of who we are, and only God can be that. And so if you think of it that way, how many of us, because so many times are like, well, I don't have any issue with idols because you think everything in your life is good, but it's that good thing that's become that ultimate thing. Author Tim Keller, he quotes a sociologist in one of his books, uh, Robert Bella, who, who had this take I thought was really interesting. And he said, you go back in our, our history and, and culture and the way things kind of used to be and he said historically, he said, people used to make money and have sex to build community. So, You would make money to support the community. You would have sex, obviously in the context of marriage, to procreate so that you would build community, and that was kind of the main focus of those two roles in community. He said that's not at all true today, the way that we function. What we do today is that we make money and we have sex to find our identity, because those two things that should be something that is a blessing from God have become the ultimate thing in our culture, money and sex. And so instead of being in the place where they should be, a good thing that God has given, they become the ultimate thing, and in becoming an ultimate thing, they become a bad thing in our lives. How many times have you and I in our lives gotten to a place where something gets exalted to that place that only God should have? What happens when we do that is it steals the affection that only should be given to God, and therefore what happens is now we're turning towards that idol and turning away from God and no longer walking out what he has called us to have in our lives. And then as we transition now, more of the the side of how do we live this out? So if we're going to walk in repentance, there's a rhythm that we have to walk in. And the first rhythm that you and I can understand about this is, number one, to practice honest confession. This scares us to death. You mean I actually have to disclose my sin? Yes, listen to Psalm 32, verse 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What is that saying? It's saying, listen, all of us carry the burden and the weight of our brokenness and our sin and our failure. And the longer we hang on to it, the heavier the weight becomes. And what God, this is the crazy thing about God. Just so you know, if you haven't figured this one out yet, God already knows the sin that you commit before you confess it. You are never hiding anything from God. He's just simply waiting for you to agree with already what he's already said about your life and your sin. So confession is this finally this coming to this moment where it's like this understanding that now I have to get what's inside of me out, and I have to confess it before God. And there's this amazing thing that happens when you confess your sin. In that moment, there's a breaking that happens because no longer are you in it by yourself and no longer are you carrying it because now you've handed it over to Jesus. And there's a freedom that comes in life when we do that, when we walk in that kind of repentance and we ask for forgiveness through confession. But some of us are more stubborn than others and we hang on and we hang on and we hang on. And God is saying, would you just let it go? Would you just confess it? See, what happens is when we hang on it, we become very proficient in hiding ourselves from God and we think from other people. I have a close friend of mine who, who, number, who sustained a number of injuries, He was playing, playing sports and different things. And so he went through a number of surgeries, and out of those surgeries, he was prescribed pain pills. And because of that, over time, he started to use more and more and more to cope with the pain that he was going through to the point where he knew he was starting to become dependent on it, but he didn't want to acknowledge that. And it went from just dependence to absolute addiction. And over a period of three to four years, he became addicted to it to the point where he knew how to, how to try to hide it, how to go to different doctors and different pharmacies and different prescriptions and all the things. And so he was, he was functioning, but he was completely addicted to pain medication. He even hid it from his wife, hid it from his kids, Hit hid it from his church and his leaders. He's a friend of mine who's a pastor. And and so he did that until finally the weight of that so crushed him. He knew that I, I've got to come out with this. And for him, as a, as a leader, he had to risk everything. But he did. He said, I've got to confess this. So he confessed it to his wife and his kids. And he confessed it to the leaders. And then he confessed it to the church and said, listen, this is what I've been living in. And then he went on a, an extended kind of sabbatical to just go through recovery and and the beautiful thing about what happened, I, I've talked to him and he said, listen, he said, the power of confession is so powerful in my life because I find the need to do that. In fact, he started to go to different meetings and, and even to this day, he goes to like the three different kind of AA meetings, different support groups. Why? Because he knows for his recovery to stick and walk out, he has to constantly tell on himself. He has to constantly confess not just what he's done, but what he's thinking. Why? Because when he, when he does that, the power of it is broken. He doesn't have to live it anymore. Why? Because it's out. Others are going to support him. God knows. His family knows. And so then he walks in freedom in that. Second thing, another way that we walk in this rhythm of repentance is to listen to your conscience. Listen to what internally God is saying to you. So listen to John chapter 16, verses 8 and 13. This of the Holy Spirit is describing what the Holy Spirit does. When he comes he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So when you say yes to Jesus, God's spirit comes and lives inside of you. And now what happens is that we always think of, oh, conviction, it's horrible. God's telling me how, what a horrible person I am and why, how I'm failing miserably. That's one part of the conviction of the spirit of what you're doing wrong. But he also wants to convict you of what's Right? He says, he wants to say, listen, this is what you should do. Not only this is what you should stop doing, but this is what you should be doing. That's your conscience. All of us have one. All of us have that internal mechanism that God places in us that nudges us the direction God wants us to go. Now, some of us have gotten really good at shutting it off or turning the volume down, but it never goes away. It's still there, it's always still there, and God is pushing us. He's pushing us. Listen to Psalm chapter 39, verses 23 and 24. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Trust me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. That is the scariest prayer in all of the Bible. What are you saying to God? Come take a look at every aspect of who I am and tell me what you see. That's scary. But that's what it means to, to listen to your conscience, to let God into the deepest parts of your life and say, okay, here I am, I'm an open book. Find things that I don't even know are there because they need to come to the surface because I need to find freedom from that. I need to walk in repentance of those things in my life. And God will come along and he will, he will nudge. I know he, he nudges me all the time. Sometimes the nudge comes as a swift kick in my butt, but he's still pushing because he wants to guide me into righteousness, righteousness by his, his spirit, so after about, over like the last month, there's a certain uh, kind of way that I go when I go on a run in the morning. And so when we come out of where our house is, I have to cross LA Avenue to go across to get to where I run to get down into the wash. And so when I crossed this street, I noticed when I started crossing the street that there was a crossing guard because there's a school kind of in the neighborhood near us. And, and so as I would walk from where our house is, I would always be on the opposite side of the street to cross the crosswalk from where the crossing guard was. And so I just kept doing that. And, and then, probably, I don't know, three weeks passed by, and, and, and I felt this little nudge, like the Lord was saying, listen, you should go on the other side of the street, so that you can engage in conversation with the crossing guard, and in my mind, I'm like, no, I got my earbuds in, I'm listening to a great podcast on the greatness of God, and all these wonderful things, I don't need to be bothered by people, that's my dialogue with God, so, or I've got really great worship music that's inspired me to worship you more, I don't need to bother with people, you know, anybody relate, you know, so finally, it took like then the next day, it was a little bit stronger nudge. And then the third day, and then the fourth day, it's like God literally almost like feels like it picked me up and threw me across the street. So I'm like, fine. So I cross over, and I get there, and I walk up. And, and I walk up, and it's just the, the nicest lady. And she's like, she gets startled. She goes, oh, she goes, you're my first customer of the day. And she's like, I'm like, customer? Do I have to pay to cross the street here, or what? So she goes, no. She goes, I said, well... Aren't there kids going by here? She goes, no. She goes, like, there's no kids crossing. And she goes, I- I'm not sure why, because the school's right there. And so we start talking, and I cross the street, say goodbye next day. And for the past three weeks, every single morning when I go for a run, I walk by, and we start talking. Sometimes it's 10 seconds. Sometimes it's two minutes, depending on how the cycle of the light's going. We've talked about how long she lives and see me, why she likes to be a cross guard, and constant guard. what she's doing. In fact, it's pretty funny. Now she knows about the time that I'm going to come down the street. And there's times I'm like literally like 20, 30 yards away. She sees me, and she runs to like light, and she starts pushing the button. Now, I don't know if that's being courteous, or it's the fact I don't want to talk to this guy for very long. So if the light turns green, he can cross and just move on. I don't know. But I just keep going. And each time, and now it's like, it's like, we actually like look. I look for like, hey, I'm going to say hi to her this morning. I don't, I don't know ultimately why God did that. I know obviously God loves people, so I need to love the crossing guard in my neighborhood. But I know ultimately that relationship will continue to build and build and build. What was that? That was God using my conscience by the Holy Spirit to move me towards righteousness. That's all it is. And if we listen to that, we walk in that and we head the direction that God wants for us. And then the final thing is this: the final rhythm of repentance is live in authentic community. There's a couple of really key passages from the book of Hebrews that are really important when we talk about what it looks like to live in community, which means letting people know you as you know them. So Hebrews chapter three verses twelve and thirteen says, "Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, uh, a evil, uh, lest there in any of you be an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." Every single day, someone should be speaking into your life. Every single day, someone should be exhorting you and encouraging you as you move forward. Every single day. Why? If not, then we'll end up with evil and evil, unbelieving heart that will fall in deceitfulness because we're not allowing others to speak into our lives or to be known. And then listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together. Now, let me bring some clarity to what's being said there before we close. This is really important. When we read this passage, in fact, I've heard this taught by pastors, that what we're referring to is they say, let's not neglect meeting together. What they always are referring to is a Sunday morning gathering, which means you should show up to church because it's really a bummer when church is empty and we need more people to be there and we need our attendance numbers. That's just code word from pastors when they go to this passage sometimes. Don't neglect, you know, meeting together. Make sure you show up and don't watch football on Sunday morning. That's kind of what's going on in the background. That's not what the passage is talking about. Because if you go back to the book of Acts, you go back to the New Testament and you understand what the reference to meeting together looked like, it didn't look like this. This is not what they were doing in the New Testament. Meeting together with them was, for the, for the most part, not always, but more than not, was meeting in somebody's home. It was over a meal. It was in community. It was in relationship. It was, it was not just, I come in a room, I sit facing forward, I sing a few songs, I hear a couple announcements, I give a little money, somebody speaks, and then I go home. I went to church. No, you went to a gathering. You went to a service, but you didn't go to church, because you are the church. But in the New Testament, when this reference says meeting together, meeting together was, I'm meeting with people who know me, and I know them. Because in the New Testament, talk about the church being on the margins. The church wasn't central to the culture yet. And because of that, they were in fear for their lives. They didn't have the prominence that even we have today. In fact, their, their lives were always on the line. Why? Because they were looked at as a threat to, to Rome and a threat to the religious establishment among the Jews. So, they had to gather in homes. They had to know each other. In fact, in passages in in Acts, it talks about how they knew each other so well that literally they would sell their possessions and support each other. So, there was a time in the church where nobody had need because they were that connected. What does living an authentic community really look like? It's when you let somebody into your life as they let you into their lives. It's letting somebody know who you really are. Not the person that you pretend to be or the mask that you put on on Sunday mornings. It's actually the person of who you really are. That's true community. See, and God's put that in that. He's embedded it into us as human beings because you and I cannot grow in our faith. We cannot walk the road of repentance on our own. You can't. You can't do it on your own because the enemy loves when you and I try to do it. Oh, I don't need the church. I don't need people. It's just me and Jesus. Isn't it funny when you go to Jesus, you know what he'll do? He'll push you right back to people. He always does. It can't just be you and Jesus. There's a part of your walk with Jesus that is you and Jesus, but Jesus will always push you back to the the church, to people. So that means that if we know that's true, then why in the world do we isolate ourselves? Why do we separate ourselves? Why do we, I don't really need them. And yeah, you're dying inside because you and I need people. I'm going to close with this, and this is not a pitch to be a part of a program, but let me, let me just talk to you about way, the progression of our church and how important this is. You've heard, if you've been a part of a church, you've heard about community groups, probably to the point you're like, okay, I'm done already. I get it. We're about 46 percent of the people who are part of Antioch are in a community group. That means there's 54 percent that are not, and I can tell you When I talk to people on a Sunday morning or I talk to them during the week and I don't know if they're in a community group or not, I can tell within the first five minutes of my conversation if they are or not. Because the language they use and the way they think about their life is completely different than someone's in a community group. Because in our church, I've watched over the last few years as community groups continue to grow and people continue to get engaged in them, what happens is living in community does this beautiful thing. It helps you see people around you and also the church becomes the church. I can't tell you how many times over the last few years where some need has come up in somebody's life who is in a community group and the church being kind of the offices, we'll just reference that, the, the, the pastors and staff, we hear about the need after the need's already been met. That means the community group heard about the need or the person in the community asked the community group. I mean, it's happening even right now. People go through a crisis. People go through, I'm in the hospital. And guess who's the first people to show up with meals and the first people at the hospital? It's the community group that know each other and love each other, that's what was happening in the New Testament. But when somebody, not that we we still do this, but when someone calls a church and says, I have a need, that's one of the first questions. Are you in a community group? Because if you were in a community group, you probably wouldn't be calling the church right now. You would be amongst the people that you know, in community, supporting each other. And so that's why I want to encourage you, if you're not in a community group, you need to be in one. It's like, I don't have time. You can't afford not to have time because you're living your faith in isolation and the enemy, that's why we're called sheep. There's, there, honestly, there's a reason we're called sheep. It's not necessarily derogatory, but sheep are the stupidest animal on the planet. They can't even find food on their own. They can't. And they get isolated and separated because they're hard-headed and they end up on their own. And that's when the enemy strikes, when they're isolated away from the herd. God says, you're just like sheep. So don't think you can wander off and feed yourself. You can't. Find your way into community. I wish sometimes we could just roll the clock back 2,000 years and we'd go, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I have to have time for that. That has to be the rhythm of my life. I have to be in community because I can't survive. But today, what do we do? The danger of I can go online, I can listen to any message, I can go read scripture in any place, but I don't ever have to engage people. I can just be separated Sometimes technology can be a curse. But we have to be in community. And I've seen it happen. Not always, but most people who walk in community don't struggle as much with repentance and going back into the issues of sin in life as people who walk on their own. Not always, but I'll tell you, if you're struggling, you're struggling. One of the reasons may be because you're isolated and God's saying, listen, it's time to get back into community. It's time to be a part of a group of people who love you and you love them, who knows you and knows them. So basically, it's giving people access Kim and I had dinner with a family that we were good friends with, and we were talking about our kids. And we I've told this before, but we use this little app called Find My Friends, and we track Courtney and Jordan, and they track us too. They know where we are. And we just do that because we want to kind of know where they are and what time they're coming home, and same with us. And they say, oh, we don't track you. I'm like, I know. We get texts when we're places. Hey, what are you guys doing there? How did you know? Find my friends, right? Should be called find your parents because they can find us anywhere else. Well, we're sitting down to dinner and we're talking about that and our friends say, oh, pff, find my friends. That's like so yesterday. And they pull out this other app. I don't even know what it's called, but it like tracks everything about your kids. I mean, it tells where they are, how long they've been there. And then there's the other crazy thing function. It tells you exactly how fast they're driving in their car. It tracks their speed. So, their son, though, they, they, they say their son gr- drives, no, nothing offensive to anyone of age, okay? But they said their son drives like a granny, because he does. He doesn't ever go over this feeling like they'll look at like the phone like, oh, he's driving like a granny again. Well, hey, better than to drive like you know, Mario Andretti, but still. But they track everything, they know everything. Who knows everything about you? Other than God, who knows everything about you? Who have you let into your life as they have let you into their life? so that they know your strengths, your weaknesses, that they know you for who you are, and they choose to accept you, so that you can lock arms and follow Jesus, so when you have a twins, you're turning back to the old way of life, not when your arms are locked, you'll get a, a stiff yank, and they'll pull you right back on the path of repentance. We need each other. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the example Although it be one that was negative of Nineveh, Assyria, Babylon, those nations that chose to not follow you, not repent. But Lord, we know that the Old Testament stories and scriptures are recorded, not just for historical purposes, but to show your work in the lives of people and also for us to learn what it really means to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray today you would help us to, to walk out this path and this walkway and this lifestyle of repentance, so that, Lord, we don't find ourselves going back. We find ourselves moving forward into what you're doing in our lives. So, Lord, if it's confession that we need today, I pray, give us the courage to bring what's inside out. Lord, if it's listening to the voice of your Holy Spirit who's drawing us to do something different in our life or convicting us to not do something we used to do, let us hear loud and clear. And Lord, for some of us today, we need the courage to be in community. I'm going to close with this, just with your eyes closed. As I was praying this morning with leaders before the first service, which we do every week, anyone's welcome to come at 815. We're sharing what we feel the Lord's saying for today. One of the things the Lord said to me clearly this morning as I was praying, He said, my presence is here, I'm here. It's not because He lives at this address, but He's present because His people are here. He said, but I I want people to understand that I am here and I am present not for just some people. I am here for all people. Every single person. Every season of life, every age, every gender. I am present here today to encounter them. So it isn't that some would get to engage Jesus and others would leave without, but he was wanting to say all of us. And so... For those of you who maybe find yourselves on the fringes, even with Jesus or even engaging in community, Jesus is saying to you today, I have come and my presence is here for you, for you to engage in what I'm doing. So Jesus, give us the courage to walk in repentance this week. Give us the courage to walk obediently before you. Give us the strength not to to be like Nineveh, not to go back, but to move forward. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.